All right, we're going to jump right into the Word. So if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. Uh, I've entitled the message, The Hour is Here. If you don't have a Bible, it should be a, a black Bible or in one of the chairs around you. We're going to be on page 904 in that Bible. As is a custom, we go through uh, the book of John line by line, verse by verse, and we're coming to the to the climax of the book here in a couple weeks, obviously Easter. And uh, by God's providence, we're going to be in the Easter passage in John chapter 20 on Sunday. So I love how the Lord orchestrates that. But I've entitled the message, The Hour is Here. The hour is here, a familiar phrase for us that have been through uh, the study of John. And from John chapter 13, I don't know if you have a Bible like mine, but basically if you have a Bible like mine with the red letters with Jesus speaking, and from John 13 to, to John 17, there's a lot of red. In fact, red dominates those chapters in the text. And the reason why is because Jesus is speaking. He's in the upper room discourse. He's talking to his uh, 11 disciples. Judas has left at this point. He's talking to his 11 disciples. And he's laying down, again, the foundation of uh, the church for, for, for these attributes, these characteristics for his disciples to pass down as Jesus is going away. We saw in these final words of Jesus uh, many characteristics. Uh, we talked about love. Love has been the main theme, the main foundation through which Jesus has been proclaiming, right? They'll know you're my disciples by what? Your love for one another. And undergirds the whole, the whole context of the message. And we said there shouldn't be anyone in your circle of influence that is lacking love if you're a Christian. It should be the dominant theme of your life. Christians, disciples of Christ, should be lovers of people. Then we looked at servanthood. We said that Jesus takes the form of a bondservant. He strips down to his, his undergarments and washes the disciples' feet. Servanthood should be another characteristic that just permeates us as believers, as fellow disciples of Christ. Hence, another plug for children's ministry. If you're not serving, that would be an excellent opportunity for you to serve, serve the, the children of the church. And then we talked about the Holy Spirit a couple times. Jesus said, hey, it's good that I go away because I'm going to send you a helper. And who doesn't need help in this life? We all do. In fact, the helper is very God himself. And then we talked about abiding in the true vine. We talked about even how to, how to when, when persecution comes, how do we respond to persecution? So all these topics. But there's another topic that's been kind of behind the scenes that comes to the forefront of John 18. And it's the characteristic that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He is orchestrating every single event in the Gospel of John, and that we're going to see in the next couple weeks, that God is sovereign. So many prophecies are going to be fulfilled in the coming weeks. It's astounding. A.W. Pink, who probably wrote one of the best books on the sovereignty of God called The Sovereignty of God, says this. This is how he defines sovereignty. It is the exercise of the Lord's supremacy, infinitely elevated um, above the highest creatures, he is the most high, the Lord of heaven and earth, subject to none, influenced by none, absolutely independent. God does as he pleases, only as he pleases, and always as he pleases. It's a great definition of sovereignty. And I would, I would venture to say that if you've been a Christian for a while, that some of the first verses, one of the first verses that you memorize dealt with the sovereignty of God. Because you understand we live in a Genesis 3 world and, and trials and tribulations and suffering comes upon us. 
And it's this verse that we lean on. What verse do you think I'm talking about? Romans 8, 28 and 29, right? Now we know that, that God, for those that love God, are called according to His purpose. He works all things together for what? Your good. The sovereignty of God. A.W. Pink goes on to, to quote Charles Spurgeon, where Charles Spurgeon says this about the sovereignty of God. There is no attribute more comforting to His children than that God is sovereign. And I, and I give a hearty amen with Chuck right there, you know. It's like, you, you nailed it. Because I know many times in my life, I've rested on the sovereignty of God. That has been the only thing, the only foundation in which I could rest on as the waves were crashing in on me or maybe even my family. So over the next three weeks, we're going to look at uh, the greatest tragedy, really, in the history of mankind. Jesus being arrested, tried, beaten, and then crucified. And even though it's been the greatest tragedy, at the same time, it is the greatest victory the world has ever experienced or seen. And it's all being guided by God's sovereignty. Since the beginning of creation, the Lord, God the Father, has planned and now is executing everything that we're going to go over the next three weeks. He, he, he's planned Jesus' arrest and he's executing it. He's, he's planned the, the trials, the beatings, the crucifixion, and ultimately he has planned the resurrection of Jesus for his glory and for our salvation. And not only for our salvation, but also for our security, our comfort. When difficult situations arise, knowing this, knowing that God is sovereign is an anchor to our souls especially when the waves, again, of trial and tribulation crash in on us. So let's dive in and see how it is also an anchor for Jesus as well, going through his biggest trial on earth. And so first we see the sovereignty of God in the arrest of Jesus in verses 1 through 11. John 18, 1, we see this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, I have a couple pictures of uh, kind of this path that Jesus probably took. We see the Temple Mount is probably to the to the left, I believe, and that little path where that car is or that truck is the is the path that leads to uh, the Valley of Kidron, and this is where Jesus is walking. This is this is here. This is reality. This is this is true. And what we see here is at the end of John 14, um, we know that Jesus and his disciples have left the upper room. In the end of John 14, it says, rise and let us go from here. And where they are going, they're taking this path to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is around the Mount of Olives. This is where Jesus is taking his disciples. And again, to get there, they had to walk through this valley of the Kidron Valley. Now, the Kidron Valley in the Old Testament uh, is really rich with history. It shows up a number of times in First and Second Kings. It's one of the. It stands out, and it stands out for our purpose today. That's why uh, the Holy Spirit inscribed it in John. Commentator William Hendrickson points out that we see another king who took this same route, this through the Valley of Kidron, in very similar circumstances. This king was King David. We read about the story in 2 Samuel chapter 15. It was when David's son, Absalom, was, was basically kicking David out of the throne, rebelling against King David. And again, we see this, this, this betrayal of David from his son. But more importantly, we see three other ways in which this highlights Jesus' betrayal as one. One, David was betrayed by a very, very close friend. One in his inner circle. Uh, this man named Ahipothel. Just like we see Jesus was betrayed 
by someone in his inner circle named Judas. And then we see that David was rejected by the people of Israel as king. He was rejected uh, by the people of Israel, just like Jesus was rejected. We see in eight, uh, verses um, 38 through 40 that uh, Pilate offers Barabbas, this murderer, this insurrectionist up with Jesus, and the people can pick which one they set free. And they set free the murderer, Barabbas, and they send Jesus to his death. So David was rejected by his own people. Jesus was rejected by his own people. And finally, because of his guilt, Ahipothel killed himself. He saw his betrayal, the guilt weighed so much that he betrayed his friend David that he hung himself on a tree. And we see the exact same thing that happens with Judas. Judas hangs himself because of his guilt of betraying Jesus. So what do we see? We see that David's betrayal, his humiliation and suffering is pointing to another greater betrayal, humiliation and suffering, that of Christ And we see the sovereignty of God working in history, pointing all things to this moment. The sovereignty of God on display. Verse 2. Now Judas, who betrayed him, Jesus predicted this in John 13, uh, the sovereignty of God again, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having uh, procured a band or cohort of soldiers and some other officers and chief priests, and the Pharisees went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. It was early in the morning, 1 a.m., so it was dark, and Judas and the, and the Sanhedrin sends this, uh, this cohort, this, uh, this um, band, is anywhere from like 300 to 600 men. So it's not just something small. This is a massive cohort that's coming to arrest Jesus. Again, they're carrying lanterns and torches because it's dark. It's in the middle of the night. So they need light, right, to, to find Jesus and to, to arrest him. I mean, Jesus has already went ninja on him a couple times in the bright daylight, right, where he's been proclaiming in the synagogues and, and in the temple. And they go to arrest him in the middle of the day, but Jesus gets away from them. So they need spotlights to make sure that Jesus doesn't hide in the nooks and crannies of the darkness of the garden. And we also see that they bring weapons just in case. Now, why would you bring weapons against Jesus and his 11 disciples? Well, because if you recall, Jesus by himself, he cleansed the temple. Probably hundreds, if not thousands of people by himself. He removed all those people with a whip by himself. And so they don't want to take any chances with Jesus. So they, hence they have this big cohort to arrest him. Then we look at verse 4. Then Jesus, again, notice the sovereignty of God, knowing all this would happen to him, came forward and said to him, Who do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to him, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. In earlier accounts, when they come to arrest Jesus, we see Jesus again uh, get away. But here, Jesus doesn't step to the background. In fact, he steps forward. He shows himself. He presents himself to Judas, the Sadducees, the leaders, and the, the guards. And I want to be real, real clear here that even though Judas and the Pharisees have been plotting against Jesus for this time, that God the Father has ordained this. This has come to pass in this perfect time, this perfect place, because God the Father has planned this from the foundation of the world. And He is the one that's executing this plan. This is God's plan. 
We see when they ask for Jesus, Jesus comes forward, steps, over, steps forward. Um, we might miss this in English, but when Jesus asks them, who do you seek? And they say, I am he. We might think of that as like, you know, you, where, where's Aaron? Oh, I'm he, I'm right here. Well, in the original Greek, it's just two words. It's just ego of me. It's I am. Now, you guys know why that's so important, don't you? Because over the course of John, we've seen Jesus say that very name seven times in which he studied. He's declaring to the world who he is. He's taking the very name of God and ascribing it to himself. And notice what happens. Notice how they react. It says when he says this, the soldiers, think about this, they step back and they all fall down. We see the power of the name of God here. Now, I don't know about you. But at that moment, I mean, it's, you know, we're 300 here. It's probably twice the size of us. If we all came to Jesus, who are you? I am. And we all took back and fell down all at once. How would you respond? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'd be like, and yes, you are. You are the I am, right? I'm just going to take my little torch and go right on home right now, right? Is that, I mean, that's what I would have done probably. But these guys are so stunned that Jesus asks them again. He says, I am he. And what we read about in the next couple of verses is really Jesus' incredible commitment and obedience to this hour, to this plan that was um, planned before the foundation of the world. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, this was more like a, more like a, a long dagger, probably 12 to 16 inches, Machaira sword uh, is what it's called. And he probably took it under his undergarment. So we see that Peter believes in concealed carry, right? Um, <laughs> He drew it back and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And now we know that in Luke's account, being the doctor, Luke accounts that Jesus healed um, Malchus's ear. Why? Because Jesus is protecting his disciples. They come for Jesus. This is the way that Jesus... Because if, 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 if Jesus didn't heal Peter's ear, they would have arrested Peter um, for murder or attempted murder. But because Jesus healed it, he allows Peter and the rest of them to go free. And then verse 11, Peter says this. I'm mean, sorry, Jesus says this to Peter. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And here we see, again, Jesus' sole singular focus. For this hour he's come to, and he's ready to drink the cup. Remember, Jesus has just prayed by himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, that, that prayer where he's pleading with the Father apart from his disciples to the point where it says Jesus is troubled and, he, and he's praying so intensely that his, his capillaries start to burst at the, at the top of his skin and blood starts to flow because of the, the agony that he's feeling about the cup he's about to drink. We know that the cup that he's about to drink is the cup of God's wrath for sin. Isaiah fifty one seventeen calls this cup the cup of God's wrath. And it's at this moment, though, that you can see Peter, and you can see Jesus, and it's not recorded. This is just in my mind, maybe what takes place. You can see Jesus talk to Peter and just be like, Peter, hey, bro, man, man, thanks for your courage. Thanks for your desire to step up, where everyone else is shrinking back, to step up and protect me in front of all these guards. I appreciate that. I really do. And by the way, you are terrible swordsman, right? How do you, how do you miss his whole head? Because you know he wasn't just going for his ear, right? Peter was trying to chop the dude's head off. But this is the plan. This is the plan, Peter. Remember, I lay down my life. No one takes my life from me. 
I lay it down. And at this moment, I am laying down my life. I am allowing these guys to rescue me because it is the Father's plan. It's not Judas's plan. I'm not the victim here. I'm actually the victor here. And these are the situations, the circumstances that are going to take me to that end. That must take place. So we see God's sovereignty over the rest. Arrest. Uh, secondly, we see uh, God's sovereignty over the denial in verses 15 through 18 and 25 through 27. In John 13, 36, as we already mentioned, Peter made this bold declaration, right, to Jesus. Hey, everyone else is going to leave you, but I will follow you. I will stand there with you. I will not, I, I will lay down my life for you. In a sense, he just did that, in a sense. But Jesus said, he predicted that, no, Peter, man, that's again, a great, thank you for your courage and your desire, but you're going to deny me three times. We all know the story. In fact, all four gospels record this. And so we read that in John 13, 36, where Jesus predicts that about Peter. And then in 18, 27, we see that Peter, the third time, says Peter again, the third time, denied it. Again, denied being associated with Jesus in any capacity. And at once the rooster crowed. And here again, again, we see the sovereignty of God as God predicted it and is fulfilled. God again orchestrated all the smallest details to Peter's denial, but also the, roaster, uh, the rooster's crow. His cry. And I'm only going to spend a little, a short time on this because in John 21, we're going to see this massive, awesome restoration between Peter and Jesus. But I want to point out a couple things. I want to really just ask one question. How does a guy like Peter, you know, pull this kind of William Wallace courageous act where he pulls out his dagger to take on 600 guards to protect Jesus to then denying him three, three times? wanting nothing to do with him. In fact, one of the, the people that he denied was a little middle-aged, uh, middle school-aged slave girl that she so intimidated him that he cowered and denied knowing Jesus and being with Jesus. What, what happens to a man that he can be courageous and a coward within a span of a, an hour or so? How does that happen I think if we all just pause, I think we all know how that happens. Because all of us, at times, have been courageous like Peter with our faith, haven't we? And then there's also been times where we have been like cowardly Peter, where we have cowered to individuals, and even maybe even denying of really even knowing Jesus in some form or fashion. I think all of us understand how Peter and why Peter could do this. I believe our responses have to do with our relational proximity to Christ, just as Peter, and our fear of man. I think we all battle this. You see, when Peter was with Jesus in the garden, uh, relational proximity, Jesus and Peter were standing side by side. They were right next to each other. And as long as Jesus was standing right next to Peter, he was courageous. He would do anything, such as take out a sword and protect him. That was the case, Jesus, right there. And for us, I think when we're in a, a relational proximity with Christ, I mean, uh, I mean uh, our walk is strong. We're, we're in His Word. We're, we're having good communion through prayer and meditation on His Word. The Spirit is leading and guiding and directing us. When we're having a, a close walk with Jesus, we're bold. 
We're courageous, right? We'll, we'll share the gospel with whoever. We'll pray at lunch in the restaurant. We'll engage in debates in the classroom. Why? Because we have a close prox- relational proximity to Christ. He's with us. We, we feel that. Even though it's not physical, it's spiritual. We know he's with us, so therefore we're courageous. But as we see, we can become cowards just like Judas when the relational proximity might be broken. Judas goes on to see Jesus again arrested and taken away and, and changed. Peter sees him beaten. And Peter's thinking, holy cow, if men could do this to Jesus, what would they do to me if they knew I was a part of his entourage? And I think we do the same thing. When we're not relationally close with Jesus, when we're lacking in the Word, when we're lacking in community, when we're not praying, when we're in our dry valleys, I think that's when we're most vulnerable to becoming cowards and, and denying who Jesus is and not engaging in debates. And when someone's talking about, hey, you believe this, you're like, well, you know, you try to change the subject. You, you don't pray at lunch or dinner uh, in front of people in restaurants. Why? Because you're ashamed. There's a fear of man. So I think we all can relate with Peter, can't we? And I think that's why all the Gospels record this, to be like, hey, this is you. This is me. There are times we're courageous and there's times where we are cowards. But here's what I want us to rest on the sovereignty of God. This is where the understanding that God is sovereign, He's orchestrating all these events, not only in Jesus' life, but also your life. There's not one molecule that is, that is random. He is orchestrating all. This is where the sovereignty of God just brings us and it becomes an anchor. This great theological truth becomes so practical because here it is. Jesus and God the Father hold on to you whether you're courageous or whether you're a coward. Because he is God and he is sovereign. And it's not his, his love, his holding on to you isn't dependent on your response in those situations. It's dependent on what Christ has already done for you. We sung about it in two songs this morning. One, I purposely said, you know, uh, had Cole sing um, my favorite hymn, um, Here's My Heart, Lord, Take and Seal It, because we're prone to wonder. But he picked a, different, a better song. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For the Father loves me so, He will hold me fast. It's all dependent on how tightly Christ holds on to us, not on how tightly we hold on to him, because we have a very loose grip sometimes. Jesus here, Jesus knows that everyone in here will deny him more than once in our lifetime. He knows that everyone in here will fail him. He knows that everyone in here will cower, and yet it is his joy, it is his joy to hold you fast and hold on to you and not lose one. That is an incredible truth. God is orchestrating all these things in your life. This is good news for you and me this morning. So I want us to kind of mull over this thought about God's sovereignty in our lives. When we are courageous sometimes and when we're cowards, that it doesn't depend on our reaction. It depends on his love for us. Because in John 21, when we see him restore Peter, it is just going to be music to our souls. So we see that God uh, is also sovereign in Peter's denial as well as ours. Third, 
That leads us to uh, the religious trials. We see God's sovereignty over the religious trials and the civil trials. Um, Verses 12 through 14, 19 through 24. Jesus now arrested in the hands of the Jewish leaders, uh, the Sanhedrin. He'll actually go through six trials. Uh, There'll be six kind of kangaroo court trials, I'll call them, because they're not really trials. They're just plots to to murder Jesus. But there'll be six um, phases to uh, these trials. Uh, Three will be um, with the Jewish people and the Jewish leadership, and it's more of a religious trial. And then they will ship them off to um, Pontius Pilate and the leaders of Rome for the, for the civil trial. So you have the religious trial under Jews, and then you have the civil trial under Rome. And John here only records one out of three religious trials for us. Um, we see these before Annas. Um, the one he doesn't um, record for us is the one with the Sanhedrin. You can read about that in Luke 22. And then the trial before Caiaphas, although John mentions it just briefly in Luke, uh, I'm sorry, in John verse 28, here in verse, uh, chapter 18. So John records uh, Jesus before Annas. Now, Annas was the, the high priest that precedes Caiaphas. Caiaphas, at this time, is the high priest. Annas was the one to come before. So, obviously, Annas is like we have President Trump right now. Annas was President Barack Obama. Not a big deal. He's the high priest. And once you had that title, you kept it throughout life. So, verses 12 through 13, we also see that he's the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Annas starts to question Jesus in verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to you, uh, to the world, as I've always taught in the synagogues and the temple, where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Just like the seven I am statements, where Jesus has been open and honest. He's, what he's said in public, he's also preached in private. What he's preached in private, he's also said in public. So there's no bait and switch here. Verse 21, why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them, and they know that what I've said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Can you imagine that? Jesus getting struck, getting slapped in the face by a soldier, and then being reprimanded. Is that how you answer the high priest? Holy cow. I mean, if I was Jesus, which is a good thing I'm not, I would, I would have done like a righteous Darth Vader on him, right? And what I mean by that is I would, have just, I would have lifted my hands and done that little choke thing you know he does, and I would have choked out that guy for just a little bit, right? For smacking me in the face. But of course I'm not. Jesus, in his humility and his self-control, verse 23, Jesus answered him, if what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but... What I said is right, then why do you strike me? That's the right action. He gets to the heart. And of course, they had no answer for the unjust arrests and beatings and trials. So we see that Annas quickly sends him off, bound him to Caiaphas, the high priest. And here's what I need this to see in these trials. Again, they're, they're called trials, but they're really not trials. They're just a They're just a plot to execute and murder Jesus. We know that from John chapter 5, John chapter 11, all the way since John chapter 5. Remember the healing of the paralytic. They've been plotting to murder Jesus to get rid of him. So these so-called trials are really, they're just unfair. One commentator called them a farce. Let me just give you three reasons why these these trials are unfair. There's many, there's seven, eight, ten reasons why they're unfair, but let me give you three. First, no trial for the death penalty was allowed during the night. It had to be done in public, in front of the public. 
Um, and here we see that Jesus was arrested and tried from 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. in the morning without any kind of public hearing, without even the public knowing. So that's one strike. Number two, the arrest of Jesus was a bribe. It was because of blood money was, was spent. The Pharisees bribed Judas to bring him in and to, and to arrest him unjustly to bring up these false charges that would immediately have been thrown out of court. Number three, the Sanhedrin didn't have any witnesses. In Mark's account, it says that um, uh, they found none to come and testify against him. So they had to round them up. They had to round up false witnesses against Jesus to give false testimonies, these trumped-up charges. So that's a third way this was unfair. And so what I want us to see this morning is that these trials were unfair. And to say that, it's a massive understatement. Yet the sovereignty of God comes in and saves the day for Jesus, and also for us. Because we've been treated unfairly in life, I'm, I'm sure of. I'm sure of. Many of us have had many circumstances, many situations where we got treated immorally, unjustly, unfairly, haven't we? But to see that this, the, the, the greatest tragedy, was planned from the beginning... Acts 2.23 says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was in control of the greatest tragedy. He's also in control of your life when things go wrong. He allows these things to happen. You see, this didn't take Jesus and God the Father by surprise. When he got arrested, when he went through all these false trials, when he got treated unfairly, unjustly, God the Father didn't go like, oh, whoops, you know? He wasn't scratching his head and be like, oh my gosh, what, what is happening here? No, he was in total control because he's ordained it. He's allowed it to come to pass. And so that should bring our, our hearts and our souls peace and hope as well. If he did this and orchestrated this in Jesus' life, when, the, when life takes a left turn in our lives, when we are treated unjustly, unfairly, even immorally, we know, not discounting the pain and the angst, but we know that God has a plan for our good in it. Life is unfair. Um, we can talk about a number of ways in which, you know, I've been treated unjustly, my wife and family, friends, and, and even many of you. I mean, think for a second, just in general, maybe this might be a silly one, but I think, it, I think we can all resonate. Has anyone flown on an airplane recently, right? And they charge you 30 to $50 for your carry-on where that used to be free? I mean, that's immoral, is it not? Or am I the only one to think that that's immoral, right? And they, they, don't, they don't tell it in the price. They put in that little star asterisk in the fine print where you've got to read it. So you go and you think you've paid everything, and then all of a sudden they ask you for your credit card for another 50 bucks for your carry-on. I mean, they don't even give you a saltine crackers and a Coke anymore half the time, right? It's like five bucks they want you. It's unjust. Now, don't treat the ticket person, I know we have some stewardess here, or the stewardess, falsely or wrong, don't be mean to them, it's not their fault, they're just doing their job, right? But that's a silly way. But there's also ways in which we've been treated unjustly and it's been painful. It's hurt. It's been wrong. There's a cheesy saying, but because of the sovereignty of God, I think it's, it brings truth and weight to it. It says this, it says, when life gives you lemons, Jesus makes lemonade for you, Right? Or in my case, he makes those lemon bars with powdered sugar on top because I love those things. But I think 
we can all resonate. Let me give you another scripture that deals with the sovereignty of God in our lives when we, when we get treated unjustly. It's really the uh, Old Testament version of Romans 8.28. It's Psalm 37.23. It says this, The steps of the man are established by the Lord when he delights in his ways. Though he fail or though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. And this is David speaking. David says this, I have been young and now I am old, and yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken. Isn't that a beautiful truth? Doesn't that, doesn't that give peace and security to your soul? David said, I've been old and I've been young, and I've never seen God's people forsaken, left out in the, in the dark, left out by themselves, isolated, hung out to dry. No, the Lord is always there working these trials, these unfair situations for your good. That is a massive anchor to our soul in the midst of trouble. So we see that after the third meeting with Caiaphas, that he now sends Jesus to Pilate. And we end with the the civil trial. The civil trials, really there's three here. And we don't get Herod's trial. We get basically kind of the summary of two the two times he was in front of Pilate. Uh, Jesus goes to Pilate, and then Pilate sends it to Herod. We don't have that account. And then Herod sends it back to Pilate, and we have that account. And so in John 18, 28 through 32, we really see the wickedness of the leaders of the Jews. Verse 28 says, we read that the Jews won't even go to Pilate's house because he's a Gentile. Starting the festival, it's time, and if you, any Jew went into a Gentile's house, that's anyone that's not Jewish, uh, because the Gentile's house was defiled, it would make them unclean as well, and they couldn't participate in the festival, so they'd have to go get unclean. And so in verse 28, we see the Jews in their holiness say, I can't even go into Pilate's home. So Pilate had to come out to them. And then we see in verse 31, Pilate says, hey, you judge him yourself. But they respond, and here's where they tip their hand. It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And now we see the root of why uh, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jewish uh, realm, have wanted Jesus and wanted this thing to go down because they wanted Rome to crucify him. Because there was capital punishment in Israel. How did they do capital punishment in Israel? Stoning, right? Right? But here, they said it's not law for us to put anyone to death. They wanted Jesus to be crucified. They weren't legally allowed to crucify anyone. And so here we see really the wickedness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the leaders of the Sanhedrin's heart. Again, verse 28, they are worried about not defiling himself by going into a Gentile's house. How about not breaking the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder? How, why not be worried about that one, Right? I mean, can you see the hypocrisy in these guys? And again, there's a little note here for us. We see what sin could do, how sin could warp our minds in thinking that something we're doing is, is evil, but the thing that we're doing that is evil is actually good. It's incredible. Isaiah 5.20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. We have to do the same thing, don't we? We have to be careful. We've got to be careful not to judge the Pharisees so bad because we can tend to do the same thing sometimes. But again, the point here is we see the sovereignty of God orchestrating the events to fulfill prophecy because verse 32 said, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. 
Jesus predicted this in John chapter 3 and John chapter 12. He said, hey, the Son of Man must be what? Raised up, right? And this is going back all the way to an event that happened in Numbers chapter 21, the time of Moses. So again, we see the Lord orchestrating history to bring Jesus to this point and not to be stoned to death, but to die on a Roman cross. And so we see this again. Jesus is not shrinking from this plan. He knows this is the next step. He goes to Pilate and he's going to the cross. Then we see in verses 33 through 38, we see Jesus and Pilate one-on-one. And Pilate really is in a quandary. He really doesn't know what to do with Jesus. He's, he's perplexed by this whole situation. So, I mean, he's got this guy that he knows is innocent. In fact, he, he proclaims it three times. I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. I find no fault in him. But yet he knows if he doesn't do something, the Jews will revolt and will basically oust him out of his position. So he's in a, he's in a pickle, so to speak. So he starts to ask Jesus a simple question, a simple yes or no question, Jesus. Verse 33, are you the king of the Jews? Simple question, yes or no? And Jesus answers him with a question, not a simple yes or no answer. In fact, Jesus, some might even think that he's actually even reaching out to Pilate and trying to, to, to see where Pilate is really at in his heart. He says, are you asking for yourself? Pilate, do, do, do you want to know personally if I'm the king of the Jews? Or has someone told you? So he's almost extending Pilate an olive branch right here. But then Jesus answers, again, not with yes or no. He says, I'm a king, but not of this world in, in essence. I'm a spiritual king. And you're like, Pilate goes, Oh, that, that. If, if he said, yes, I'm a king, then, you know, here on earth, then, then Pilate could say, you know, Jesus is an insurrectionist here. And he could indict Jesus on that. But Jesus says, I'm a spiritual king. So Pilate's like, spiritual king, what, what, what do I do with that? Now, Jesus is definitely the king of this world, but in his humanity at that point, he was a carpenter. He was not a king. And so Jesus says, yeah, I'm a king, but not of this world. And, 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 and Pilate says, so you are a king? And Jesus answered, you said I'm a king. And Pilate's like, no, 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 I'm asking you the question. Are you the king? You know, you can see, wouldn't you want to be there with Pilate right now and just see his face and how he's trying to to argue with Jesus and trying to figure out who he is? Jesus says, you are. You say that I'm a king. I just asked you if you are a king. Uh, I'm sorry. You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth, that everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Again, Pilate has no category for what Jesus is saying. He's confused. He doesn't know what to do right now. And to complicate even um, matters more for Pilate is Pilate's wife had a dream. That's not recorded here in John, but it's just recorded. that, That his wife had a dream about Jesus. And she told Pilate, have nothing to do with this man. Don't make any recommendations don't, don't bring any justice down on him. Have nothing to do with him. Let him go. But Pilate didn't listen to his wife. He should have. In fact, a lot of men should listen to their wives more often, right? But that's for another sermon. But So he's confused. And in his skepticism of Jesus' last answer, that he's come to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who listens to the truth, everyone who listens to hear who God is, Everyone listens to the message of of the kingdom, the gospel. Believes and hears, repents and follows, but Pilate rebuts what is truth. 
That could be one of the saddest statements in all the Bible because the truth, the very truth, was standing right in front of them. Jesus of Nazareth. And sadly, this is a commentary on our day as well, living in this postmodern society, isn't it? What is truth? No one seems to, whatever is true for you is true for you. Whatever is true for me is true for me. And, and people try to, to live in that reality, which is really not a reality. It's just a hypothetical because there is truth. And truth is found in Christ and Christ alone. He is the truth. He is the way and he is the life. And yet, those in our circles of influence uh, reject the truth. They reject the very revelation of truth in the incarnate Jesus Christ. And so, what I want to end with is, is this final question. Why would God sovereignly send His Son, Jesus, to this hour? I think we get the answer in John 18, 14. Real quick, you can turn right there, John 18, 14, which is actually quoting another prediction. John 18, 14 says this, It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now turn your Bibles back to John chapter 11, verse 51. And this is where, this is where um, Caiaphas first made this prediction. It said this, He did not say this, on his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied or predicted that Jesus would die for the nation, the nation of Israel. Verse 52, and not just for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's us. That's the Gentiles. Those who listened to the truth responded to the truth of Jesus. This is why. This is why Jesus was sent. It's so that he could be our substitute, that he could be your substitute and my substitute and, and die on the cross to drink that cup of wrath that you and I should drink. He was our substitute. And he propitiated or appeased the wrath of God with his death. The sovereignty of God orchestrated all salvation so that he would save you and me. And many, many many more. That's why Jesus came. So as we see in John chapter 18, we see the sovereignty of God all over this chapter. And again, it brought Jesus comfort knowing that this was the plan before the foundation of the world. Therefore, he embraced it. He stepped up. This is my life. This is what God has ordained for me. Let us walk through it. And it's the same for us. So if you're walking through an unjust time now, if you're feeling maybe beat up, if you're asking, Lord, where are you? He's there holding on to you. And this, this season will pass, and you'll look back and be like, oh, now I see how you were holding on to me when I thought I was holding on to you. And one day we will be with him forever, in eternity, in eternal life, and not having to worry about being treated unjustly or the pain and the suffering. God is sovereignty working all things together for his glory and for your joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, John 18, and thank you for the reality that you are sovereign. That brings such a peace and a security to us, knowing that we live in a Genesis 3 world, and this world is unjust, it's unfair, it's immoral, and it, there's an enemy out there orchestrating um, things against us. And yet, you know, when trouble and trials and suffering hits that although they come from individuals or, or companies or whatnot, 
you allowed them to happen because you're producing something in us. You're producing faith and faith and in the end, you're producing a joy. And so, Lord, if there's anyone in here right now that doesn't have that peace, today is the day um, to repent of their sins and to, and to look to you, the one Savior who was the one substitute to die for the many. That you drank the cup for them. If there's anyone in here that needs to repent and trust in you, uh, I pray, as, as Billy Graham says, the Bible says that they would repent and trust for you because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.